Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on May 10th, 2023. We have had an eventful couple of days in top-tier macro data points, including jobs data last Friday and the latest CPI print this morning. We also got another rate hike from the Federal Reserve last week, bringing the top of the range of the federal funds rate target to 5.25%. The FOMC statement and Chair Powell suggests that this might be the last hike for now, and the futures market is already pricing in a couple of rate cuts between June and the end of the year. But the Fed and the market will have to be data dependent. In the meantime, markets continue to absorb aftershocks among regional banks, and investors are focused on fundamental and technical factors as the credit cycle turns. Well, with us today to share his insight on all of this is Tom Hauser, a senior managing director and co-head of our corporate credit group. In his role, Tom oversees the group responsible for the firm's corporate credit investing activities and is the senior portfolio manager for Guggenheim's high yield and leverage loan portfolios. With the shift in the economic and credit cycle upon us, there's a lot going on in this sector, so Tom's visit is especially timely. But before we get to Tom, let's get a quick update on the macroeconomic backdrop from Paul Dozier, an economist with our macroeconomic and investment research group out in Santa Monica. Paul, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jay. Last week, we got a slew of labor market data here in the U.S. and more evidence of a growing divergence between the expected path of policy rates for the Federal Reserve and the ECB. Starting with central banks, as expected, last week the Fed hiked by 25 basis points, bringing Fed funds to 5.25%, or 500 basis points higher than where it sat just a little over a year ago. Rhetoric from the meeting increasingly signaled that Fed funds is at or close to its terminal rate. In its prepared statement, the FOMC removed language that additional tightening could be expected, replacing it with verbiage suggesting that the Fed will be entirely data-dependent from here on out. At his press conference, Fed Chairman Powell also opined that the policy rate is now in restrictive territory. The ECB also hiked rates by 25 basis points, a downshift from the three previous hikes of 50 basis points each. However, ECB officials emphasized that they were not done with hikes, with one governing council member reportedly pushing for a 50 basis points increase. The ECB also announced the end of reinvestments in June for bond holdings purchased in its main asset purchase program. In other U.S. policy developments, Treasury Secretary Yellen announced that as a result of lower-than-expected tax receipts, the so-called X date will fall on or around June 1st, a view that was corroborated by a similar estimate from the Congressional Budget Office. This sooner-than-previously-expected X date significantly increases concerns about a possible U.S. government default and the likelihood of a temporary suspension of the debt ceiling. In terms of U.S. data, April non-farm payrolls came in significantly stronger than expected at 253,000, versus expectations of 185,000. But prior month's prints were revised down by a cumulative 149,000, so the overall trend of payrolls continues to be negative. Earlier in the week, we got Jolt's job openings, which fell for a third straight month to 9.6 million, 
bringing the ratio of job openings to unemployed workers down to 1.6. That's still significantly higher than the pre-pandemic average of about 1.2, but it's finally heading in the right direction. All that said, average hourly earnings came in stronger than expected, with a year-over-year -year rate of 4.4%, and the unemployment rate ticked lower to 3.4%, both of which will be of concern to the Fed given the correlation between jobs and wages and inflation. On that note, this week, April inflation data came in about as expected, with headline CPI printing at 4.9% on a year-over-year -year basis, while core CPI ticked down slightly from last month to 5.5%. Digging into the details, higher used car prices drove a significant portion of core CPI, but the good news is that wholesale used car prices are falling, so we should see that flowing through to CPI data in another month or two. Shelter inflation has also started trending lower. But we believe core services prices, excluding shelter, will continue to be a thorn in the Fed's side. Growth in this subset of prices, which includes travel, entertainment, recreation, and personal services outside the home, have remained stubbornly high and will likely continue to do so for the foreseeable future, given how tightly tied it is to people's pocketbooks and how hot labor markets are right now. So while the overall trend in inflation has been heading in the right direction for a while now, and we're starting to see incipient signs of softening in the labor market, the Fed will continue to be on guard until it starts to see more easing in jobs and wages data. And that's all I've got. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Paul Dozier. Now, Tom Hauser, again, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you, Jay. It's good to be with you. Now, Tom, to start us off, can you give us a quick rundown on the corporate credit team that you lead, along with your colleague, Matt Bloom? How many professionals are in your group? What sectors are in your wheelhouse? What kind of strategies do you manage? And how do our clients access your team's investment skills? The corporate credit team is an 85-person strong investment team that's responsible for the research of all corporate credit investments for the firm. So that includes all investment grade to below investment grade, high yield, senior loans, and private illiquid credit. The team structure and process is a bit unique from some of our competitors in that we believe the best way to deliver results for clients is through rigorous bottom-up credit research, or said differently, credit selection. And for that reason, we've chosen to organize our team by industry research teams rather than by product. So the same industry research team will be responsible for the research performed on all corporate credit investments under their industry umbrellas. And we think that this process or this setup puts us in the best position to analyze individual credit opportunities from a bottom-up perspective and make the best relative value decisions, which ultimately put us in the best position to avoid mistakes in the market. And at the end of the day, we believe to deliver results in a fixed income portfolio, avoidance of mistakes is the best way to achieve that. One other point about the team, we do believe that a collaborative-based approach is important rather than allowing individuals to have investment autonomy. And for that reason, we have an investment committee of senior leaders on the team that meets daily to discuss the individual investment opportunities being brought by the analysts. And unanimous approval is required by that investment committee before portfolio managers can purchase those individual opportunities. And over a long period of time, this has delivered strong results, and in particular, very low downside capture, which has delivered outperformance versus the broader market. 
And Tom, you have the same process, same people, whether you're managing a mutual fund for individual investors or separate accounts for institutional clients as well, correct? That's right. At, at the end of the day, again, we believe to deliver results, especially in below investment grade mandates where default risk is higher, credit selection is key. And so for that reason, this bottom-up analysis or bottom-up approach and individual credit selection is how we manage portfolios. Now, Tom, you mentioned high yield and bank loan in your description. Look, we're going to talk about each of those markets separately, even though they have a lot in common. But, but let's begin with your thoughts on the current economic backdrop, if you will. What do you think now about what you're seeing in the economy? Sure. We're so focused on the bottom-up analysis. We certainly take our cues and allow a macroeconomic research team to inform our top-down view of the U.S. and global economies. And so taking our cues from them, we certainly are aware of the heightened risk for recession. And what comes along with a recessionary environment is a higher risk for default or credit losses in our markets. I would say our analysis of individual credits, while we haven't necessarily seen a year-over-year -year decline or a recessionary environment turn up broadly in the numbers being reported by the companies, we certainly are starting to see a deceleration in that year-over-year -year growth. And so we would agree that we are moving into a period where combination of a slowdown in the overall U.S. economy, as well as higher rates, will put pressure on companies' earnings, and the default risk is certainly higher. Let's start with high yields. Given this backdrop and from where you sit, what are some of the market trends that you're seeing in the high yield market that you're sharing with clients and that you're contending with as you're looking at the portfolios that you manage? I think the first First thing to talk about with high yield is the overall performance that we've seen year to date, which may be a bit counterintuitive given the backdrop of an expectation for a recession. And what I mean by that is we've seen pretty strong returns overall for the high yield market for the year to date period. It has been a volatile period where returns started off extremely strong in the first part of the year, especially in January. And then we start to see some volatility creep into the market based on rate volatility. First, we saw rates move out at the beginning of February with a surprise on the inflation data, which caused the assets in the high yield market that had longer duration to sell off. And then we saw the opposite occur with rates moving tighter uh, with the overall regional banking crisis that occurred towards the end of February, which drove some of the higher quality assets in the high yield market to tighten. So as I said, a bumpy ride, but overall producing strong results. We think those strong results are informed a bit by where we ended last year. And one of the items we like to look at is what does the market pricing imply or what do we believe the market pricing is implying for default rate? And does that marry up with the bottom up analysis that we see for individual credits? And when you look at the spread profile for high yield at the end of last year, we ended the year with an option adjusted spread of about 485 basis points. And to our mind, that was implying a market default rate of somewhere between four and a quarter and four and a half percent. Certainly in the historical context, that isn't a high default rate for the high yield market. However, we think there are a couple of factors that suggest the high yield market is at higher quality today, and therefore we could see a lower default rate than normally expected during a recession. And so with spreads wide and overall yields higher than they've been in quite some time, there was a bit of a technical rally that occurred in the high yield market and has occurred for the year-to-date period. 
So it sounds like you're saying that given the default rate assumption that's built into spreads, that investors feel like they're being compensated for the risk, the default risk that they're facing. To some extent, I think that's true. Broadly speaking, we've seen spreads tighten on a year-to-date basis. As I said, we ended the year last year at 485 bips. Today, we're closer to about 460 basis points, which is implying a default rate of somewhere around three and three quarters, four percent. And so we do think that investors are recognizing that there might be a higher quality bent to the high yield market versus previous recessions. The other backdrop to consider is we have extremely strong technicals in the high yield market where a new issue has been extremely light in a historical context. And while we've seen some outflows from retail funds overall, there's been cash building in portfolios. And we think that that has helped, in addition to the view around defaults, benefit the pricing to the high yield market. It sounds like if you believe that the default rate will be lower than you might typically see in a recession, considering where we are today, you must also be seeing that in the aggregate, fundamentals among high-end issuers are fairly strong right now. Yes, I think that's absolutely fair to say. Uh, one of the metrics or two of the metrics we like to look at for the high-end market are the absolute or net leverage of the underlying issuers, as well as the interest coverage. In terms of what would drive defaults, we don't really see the maturities being an issue. Within the high yield market, individual companies have done a good job of pushing out their maturities or taking advantage of accommodative capital markets over the last couple of years. And so we only see about 5% of the overall high yield market maturing over the next two years. So with that low maturity wall, what you really have to look at from a fundamental perspective is the borrower's ability to service their fixed charges. And so that's why we refer back to the net leverage and the interest coverage of the underlying issuers. Within the high yield market, about 75% of the market are public reporters. So it's a fairly good representation of the overall market. And the average net leverage profile as of the end of the first quarter of this year was just below three and a half times for that market. And that compares to a historical average of four turns of net leverage. On the interest coverage side, even more importantly, we believe, again, based on borrowers' ability to service their fixed charges, we currently see interest coverage hovering around five and a half turns for the high yield market compared to four turns for the historical average. And so that suggests underlying issuers, broadly speaking, have a fairly decent cushion to see a degradation in earnings before there is pressure on cash flow. And again, we think this default cycle will ultimately be driven by cash flow issues at individual issuers. Now let's turn for a minute to bank loans, Tom. There are as many things that are in common with high yield, but also a couple of things that are different. Talk a little bit about just as we begin the, the differences and similarities between high yield and bank loan and how you look at that. Sure. The loan market has fared a bit better over the last 18 months than the high yield market, primarily because of its floating rate coupon. And if you think back to 2022, the big impact on assets with duration was the move out in rates. And so loans were pretty much insulated from that move. And as a result, fared much better throughout most of last year. Moving into this year, the loan market has followed suit but lagged a little bit in terms of its overall trends versus the high yield market, but nonetheless has had a pretty strong start to the year as well from a perspective of its absolute return. Now, the underlying differences in quality in the loan market I think are worth noting. Historically speaking, loans, given that they are typically first lien and secured, 
and historically have achieved lower defaults and better recoveries are viewed as a safer asset. However, we have seen a bit of a shift in the overall loan market such that the quality of the loan market has deteriorated versus previous market cycles, the loan market has seen a deterioration in quality. And you can look at that from a couple of different metrics. One is the overall ratings profile of the loan market. Today, it's majority single B. And so we've seen the double B portion or the higher quality portion of the loan market decrease. And the documentation within the loan market has also seen an erosion in covenants for lenders, which we think will impair recoveries versus previous cycles. That being said, the loan market is still trading at a fairly wide discount margin, roughly 600 basis points. So it is pricing in a fairly high default rate in our mind, a little over 7% today versus that 4% for the high yield market. And so while we do agree that there is a lower quality aspect to loans relative to high yield today, we do think that the market is pricing in some of that risk. And what are you seeing on the on the technical side, Tom? I mean, is there is there a lot of product out there? Is it a new product? Are you looking more secondary market? How's the demand for, for the loan market right now? Sure. The two sides of the ledger for the technical environment for loans. On the supply side, similar to high yield, we've seen very little issuance. Again, similar to the high yield market, borrowers have done a good job of pushing out maturities. And so there is very little need for refinancing activity. Another driver of issuance in the loan market tends to be M&A or LBO activity, which given the current rate environment has stalled out. And so we've seen very little new issue. On the demand side, different than high yield, CLOs are a major component of demand within the bank loan market, representing roughly 65% of all loans outstanding. And we've seen a fairly strong start to the year for CLO issuance. So as a result, the technical backdrop has benefited the loan market similar to the technical backdrop for high yield and has supported overall loan prices despite the current backdrop for the U.S. economy and the expectation for a recession. In short, it sounds like a decent technical tailwind right now for the bank loan market. That's right. With little supply and decent demand from the largest buyer of loans, certainly a technical tailwind currently exists. But Tommy, you, you, we were talking before about how the high yield market has pretty strong fundamental position right now among bank loan borrowers. Are the fundamentals similarly strong? In a historical context, the loan market does have similarly strong fundamentals. It's a bit less of a clear picture, however, because you do not have as larger percentage of the overall market that is public reporters. However, based on the information that is available for public reporters, you are seeing net leverage below the historical average, roughly five and a half turns for the loan market versus the six turns average. And on the interest coverage side of things, we're seeing interest coverage at around five turns versus a historical average of four turns. Uh, the one thing to note around interest coverage for loan issuers while they benefited from the floating rate coupon as rates were moving wider and they were insulated from the duration impact, it also means that the underlying borrower's coupons are rising as the Fed continues to move the short-term rate higher. And so that interest coverage metric is a bit misleading as it doesn't price in a full year of the current rate environment. And on a go-forward basis, 
depending on how quickly the Fed is able to pivot in a recession, it will put more pressure on bank loan issuers relative to high yield issuers in that environment. So definitely a, a, a different kind of response mechanism, if you will, to uh, monetary policy between the two sectors. Right. The high yield market has fixed coupons. And so what the Fed does on the short end of the curve doesn't immediately impact the borrower's coupon. Whereas on the loan side of things, the reference rate will change every three or six months. And as a result, they will see their coupons significantly higher today than they were before the tightening cycle started. And if you're a holder of these securities, obviously you also have a different perspective. On the one hand, you have a fixed coupon that's going to decline in value as rates are rising. Uh, but if it's a floating rate coupon, uh, it will hold its value better because it's shorter duration. That's right. You'll benefit from an investor in loans from the increased coupon. And we believe that is a benefit to investing in loans today, offering overall yields based on the forward curve in excess of 10%. However, as noted, in an environment where we expect a slowdown in the U.S., individual credit selection becomes important and making sure the borrower can service that coupon. So let's talk a little bit about that uh, individual credit selection. When you talk about credit selection, how are you thinking about industry sensitivities or are you really looking at individual issuer names? Sure. Our team tends to let the bottom-up process drive the results, meaning it's individual security selection or loan selection that drives portfolio construction. What that means is we will not blackline or blacklist a particular industry. However, as we're heading into a recession, do you want to make sure we're sensitizing the industries appropriately for the economic backdrop that we expect? And so when we look at individual credits and bring them through the investment committee, each credit is stressed based on what we expect or how we expect that business to perform in a downturn. And, and which industries would you say are or cyclically sensitive from your perspective at this point in the cycle? Historically speaking, there are certain industries that tend to cycle harder. Consumer cyclicals, uh, by the nature of its name, tends to cycle harder individual businesses within that space. Certainly, we'll see some industrial companies in, in certain downturns, building products, et cetera. What's unique about this downturn and, and working with the macroeconomic research team, there isn't one particular industry that stands out as the loser heading into the downturn. And in previous cycles, it was more apparent which industries would be impacted by the economic slowdown. And this time around, it, it tends to be or appears to be much more idiosyncratic. And what we're seeing is borrowers are contending with inflationary pressures on the cost side, as well as rising rates, putting pressure on cash flow. The businesses that are able to price through those inflationary pressures are faring better. And then there are other businesses that have less pricing pressure for various reasons, whether it's the business model itself or structural. An example of that would be the healthcare space today. Healthcare is often thought of as a safe haven in a downturn because the services generally are viewed as uh, recession resistant. However, what we're seeing within the underlying healthcare issuers that we follow, they're facing the same inflationary pressures on the labor side, as well as some structural issues because the labor needs to be accredited in most cases. And so it's not easily fixed as there are labor shortages. And so that's causing even more pricing pressure. 
And on the revenue side, these businesses can't pass through pricing as quickly as some others. And that's because they're reliant on negotiated rates with their payers, whether private insurance or government payers. And those rates tend to be negotiated on an annual or multi-year basis. And so we're seeing some of these businesses get squeezed on the margin front with levered capital structures, which may put pressure on their ability to service their fixed charges. Tom, are you hearing questions from clients about real estate performance during this uh, this environment? Absolutely. That's another great example of a, a subsector or area that is facing some pressure. And in particular, we're seeing and expecting some structural pressure on the office space or office real estate. It's less of a overall exposure in the high yield market. There aren't a lot of businesses that are specifically exposed to office real estate like you have in the investment grade universe with some of the REITs. However, there are a handful of businesses in both the high yield and bank loan markets that do have exposure and the collateral or the business is reliant upon cash flow coming off those office properties. And since COVID changed the way companies and workers view in-office time, we believe there's going to be pressure on the ultimate valuations of some of these properties. It's not exactly clear yet how much the value will degrade. However, we do think that some of these capital structures and businesses are going to face pressure and ultimately will need to restructure based on that outcome. Everyone's watching that for sure. So Tom, let's bring it all together. Are there any notable portfolio strategy moves or decisions that you're uh, looking at right now, either areas of opportunity that look attractive, other parts of the market that you're avoiding? You know, what can you share with our listeners about the mind of the portfolio manager in, this, in these markets? Sure. We recognize where we are in the cycle will likely result in a higher default rate environment than we've been a part of for the last couple of years. And we ultimately believe that our process, which we spoke about at the beginning, which is that bottom-up analysis of individual credits, will put us in a good position to outperform in that environment and avoid many of those mistakes. The other side of it is when we're heading into a downturn and when the market is currently yielding roughly 8.5% on the high yield market and 10 plus percent on the bank loan market, there are attractive opportunities that haven't existed in a number of years in terms of the yield profile being offered. And so we think that there is an opportunity to evaluate names that have sold off in the secondary, trading at levels wide or cheap to their fundamental value and add to our portfolios. Tom, you've been very generous with your time sharing all of your views right now on the markets. Is there anything else before we let you go? Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I think we've covered a lot today. At the end of the day, we do think that opportunities exist to add good risk reward to our clients' portfolios. Well, thank you again, Tom, for your time and for your insight. Please come back and visit with us soon. Thank you, Jack. And my thanks to Paul Dozier for his macroeconomic update. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Tom or Paul or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. 
In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.